Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Stephen Zunas, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco, who examines the motives behind the November 27th assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist and the consequences for President-elect Biden's pledge to improve U.S.-Iranian relations. Ronnie Cummins, International Director of the Organic Consumers Association, who talks about the intersection of organic and sustainable farming with movements for racial and economic justice. And an excerpt of a speech delivered by United American Indians of New England co-leader Matoi Monroe at the annual Thanksgiving Day of Mourning event held in Plymouth, Massachusetts. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. President-elect Joe Biden will face a daunting number of domestic and international crises as he takes office in January. Among them is U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which has triggered a massive humanitarian crisis. Trump escalated the war he inherited from the Obama-Biden administration, compounding the extraordinary suffering Yemenis face today. Since 2015, Yemenis have been victimized by aerial bombardment, a blockade, and occupation led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which rely heavily on U.S. weapons and logistical support. After the Yemeni Houthi rebel group captured Yemen's capital, Sana'a, in late 2014, Saudi Arabia and the UAE launched a series of airstrikes with the stated goal of restoring Yemeni President Abed Rabu Mansour Hadi. Despite the Saudi-UAE military intervention, the Iranian-backed Houthis remain in control of much of northern Yemen, where approximately 70% of Yemenis live. According to Indies Times magazine, over 100,000 civilians have been killed during the five-year war. While campaigning, Biden pledged to end U.S. funding of the Saudi-led war, but his selection of Avril D. Haynes, a political moderate, to become director of national intelligence has prompted concern from some human rights groups. They question her role as the architect of the Obama administration's program targeting terrorists with weaponized drones that caused many civilian deaths. Yemeni teacher Mohammed Mohsen Bajuj says he hopes Biden will remember the poor children of Yemen who are dying every day because of U.S. weapons and the oppressive blockade. One of President-elect Joe Biden's boldest campaign promises on climate change is to ban all new fossil fuel drilling permits on public lands in an effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are a main contributor to global warming. But according to the Washington Post, the incoming administration will face several legal and political challenges as it seeks to halt new oil and gas permits on federal land and waters, given the existing laws and the enormous sums that drilling royalties generate for the federal and state governments, including Democratic-leaning states such as New Mexico and Colorado. As the Trump regime confronts their election loss, they have embarked on an 11th-hour leasing spree to help their fossil fuel allies lock in the rights to drill. 
The White House recently offered up 79 million acres of leases in the Gulf of Mexico and is rushing to auction off drilling rights in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge before Biden's inauguration day, January 20th. But Michael Bruhn, executive director of the Sierra Club, said his members expect nothing less than a drilling ban from the candidate they helped elect. After Biden named Louisiana Representative Cedric Richmond, an oil and gas industry ally, as a senior White House advisor, Varshini Prakash, head of the youth-led Sunrise Movement that campaigned for Biden, protested that Richmond's appointment feels like a betrayal. She said Biden assured our movement he understands the urgency of this crisis. Now it's time for him to act like it. For months, activists have cultivated more than 1,000 marijuana plants outside the Mexican Senate in Mexico City. The urban cannabis farm is part of a protest to pressure Mexican legislators to become the third nation in the world to legalize marijuana after Uruguay and Canada. In recent weeks, Mexico's Senate debated and approved a plan to legalize cannabis. The bill now goes to the lower house where it won the backing of President Manuel López Obrador. In 2019, Mexico's Supreme Court directed Congress for the second time to revoke laws banning cannabis. As The Economist reports, the deadline has been extended twice, first because lawmakers could not agree on legislation, then a second time due to the coronavirus pandemic. The new deadline is December 15th. Households where more than one adult lives would be limited to growing a maximum of six plants and possession of more than 28 grams but fewer than 200 would constitute an infraction punishable by a fine but no jail time. Eventually, Mexico could become a major legal supplier of marijuana to the U.S., but advocates of legalization complain that the legislation caters to large companies with the money and expertise to comply with a complex set of regulations that will give an edge to big Canadian firms and shut out informal sellers who make up the bulk of commerce in Mexico. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After Iran's top nuclear scientist was assassinated on November 27th, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani accused Israel of carrying out the murder and vowed retaliation at a time of his nation's choosing. According to Iranian state media, Moshin Fakhrizadeh, a physicist and senior official in Iran's nuclear program, was killed in an attack on his car about 40 miles east of the capital city of Tehran. The scientist had long been a top target of the Mossad, Israel's intelligence service. The assassination, occurring just weeks before President-elect Joe Biden is sworn into office, is expected to complicate his pledge to repair relations with Iran and re-enter the 2015 International Nuclear Agreement that Donald Trump withdrew from in May 2018. The Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu strongly opposes Biden's plan, to re-engage with Iran. The threat of war has loomed over the two nations since last January, when Trump ordered an airstrike 
that killed Iran's top military commander, Qasem Soleimani, at Baghdad's international airport. Your reporter spoke with Stephen Zunes, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. A specialist on U.S. Middle East policy, Professor Zunes examines the likely perpetrators of the assassination, their motive, and the consequences for the incoming Biden administration's stated goal of reducing tensions and improving relations with Tehran. Certainly the uh, Israelis don't want uh, Iran to break their nuclear monopoly. Uh, Israel's had nuclear weapons for close to 50 years now. They want to remain the only country in the Middle East uh, with with that ultimate uh, force. And so uh, they would certainly have that motivation, but also um, the United States, the CIA, could conceivably uh, be involved. uh, uh, That you know, Trump ordered the assassination of a top Iranian general, and it's very possible that he he uh, wanted to um, get rid of um, Fakhrizadeh as well. But you also have dissident groups like uh, the uh, Mujahideen al-Khakh which is a, um, a terrorist group that has uh, been operating in Iran for uh, many decades. They want to do anything they can to uh, weaken uh, the Islamic Republic. And it's also a fact that uh, the CIA, the Israeli Mossad, and, and the uh, Mujahideen have uh, collaborated at times uh, for various covert operations. Uh, so it could be one, it could be a combination of these three. There's been a lot of speculation that this scientist was assassinated in part to make any kind of U.S. reentry into the international Iran nuclear agreement that much more difficult. I wonder if you think that could have been part of the uh, calculation that was made in uh, planning and executing this assassination. Yes, the timing was weird because um, uh, President-elect Biden has uh, made clear that he is interested in reentering the uh, nuclear agreement that Iran had signed with the uh, United States, Britain, France, Germany, uh, Russia, and China, and uh, ratified by the United Nations Security Council uh, back during the Obama administration. And in re-entering this, uh, it would make it physically impossible for Iran to uh, develop a nuclear weapon for the foreseeable future. And so why assassinate someone on the prospect that he might eventually work towards a nuclear weapon when you can do that through a, a binding agreement. That could indeed be a factor, because the thing, thing about uh, Iran is that Iran, like uh, the United States, you have moderates and hardliners. There are hardliners who are uh, very much um, against the uh, efforts uh, to negotiate a nuclear agreement. The hardliners would say, we can't trust the United States. By in, in signing the, uh, the nuclear agreement some years ago, they had to physically destroy billions of dollars uh, worth of equipment, uh, including a new nuclear reactor, uh, centrifuges, and other equipment, uh, in return for the promise of ending sanctions. But the United States basically said, ha-ha, fooled you. You destroy these billions of dollars, we're going to reimpose the sanctions anyway. Even if Biden agrees to come back to the agreement on its original terms and lift the sanctions, there will be hardliners in the Iranian government who will say, hey, we don't trust the United States uh, to do this anymore. We're not going to rejoin. And so the assassination is yet another way of strengthening the hands of the hardliners, you know, saying this is, this is how the other side plays. They, they will murder our scientists rather than simply go back to an agreement that was already disadvantageous for us.
you can see how it could really just just uh, make it very very difficult for the nuclear agreement to uh, come back into to uh, effect. There's been pressure applied to the incoming Biden administration to renegotiate the Iran nuclear agreement, despite their stated uh, goal of of uh, re-entering that agreement that was abrogated by Donald Trump. What, in your view, should Biden do in terms of those calls for him to put new issues into that agreement? And Iran's stated uh, case that they will not renegotiate anything in that agreement that was put to bed years ago. When I met with uh, the Iranian foreign minister in uh, in Tehran uh, last year, he described how he and John Kerry met no less than 50 times going over everything line by line. Uh, I mean, it was a the, the negotiations. It took uh, seven years of posturing and three years of intense negotiation to hammer out every single detail. So the idea that uh, the United States, after you know, abrogating the agreement and causing uh, billions of dollars of damage to the uh, Iranian economy, uh, could suddenly say, oh, we demand more concessions of you. I really think that's a non-starter. It's going to be a struggle to get the Iranians to uh, go back to the original agreement, uh, much less one that has these additional demands. That was Stephen Zunis, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco and a specialist on U.S.-Middle East policy. Find more analysis and commentary on the assassination of Moshe Fakhrizadeh by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The organic food and farming movement began in earnest in the U.S. as part of the Cultural Revolution during the 1960s that included back-to-the-land migrations and attempts at self-sustaining communes. Later, organic food and other products became a niche market for upper-middle-class consumers who could afford the 10 to 40 percent higher prices for organic produce and meat. More recently, organic activists have begun to recognize the key role that sustainable pesticide-free agriculture plays in the fight against climate change and for environmental justice. Between the Lines' Richard Hill spoke with Ronnie Cummins, co-founder and international director of the Organic Consumers Association, about the intersection of organic and sustainable farming with movements for racial and economic justice. Here he talks about the need for these movements to come together after the 2020 election to push the incoming Biden administration toward a Green New Deal and a macro approach to healthy food production and distribution. We're facing a a realization that institutional racism and climate injustice, environmental injustice, are still with us stronger than ever, and that we've got to deal with this simultaneously. It's not enough for the organic community to congratulate ourselves that people are becoming more health conscious and that we've got 50 to $100 billion industry that we've helped develop because economic injustice is still there. And the reason why people of color and low-income people are dying at much higher rates and getting seriously ill at much higher rates, not only from COVID-19, but from chronic disease in general in the United States, 
is partly because they do not have access nor the economic means to build to afford this organic food and grass-fed meat and animal products that people you know, understand now are, are healthier. So we've got to deal with our public health crisis. We've got to deal with the institutional racism and economic injustice that are endemic. And then we've got, a, on top of all this, a political crisis. When are we going to have someone running for president who actually talks about the need for organic and regenerative agriculture? You know, when are we going to see someone discussed in the mass media for future U.S. Secretary of Agriculture who isn't just one more of the same? One case in point recently has been the media buzz about Biden is looking at potential Secretary of Agriculture appointees, and Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota pops up. And, I mean, didn't I remember Trump, you know, wanting to choose her as Secretary of Agriculture when he first got in there? Well, yes, it's true. And haven't I noticed that Heidi Heitkamp gets more money from corporate agribusiness and biotechnology companies than any other member of Congress? Haven't I noticed that Heidi Heitkamp led the charge to not have labels on GMO food and so on? I'm very confident that we're going to raise hell and we're going to we're going to have a bigger impact on public policy than we've ever seen. And I don't think people are going to go back to the, quote, normal, you know, 60 percent of Americans having chronic disease and 40 percent of Americans having multiple chronic diseases. I think people are starting to realize we got to get back control of our diets, our health, and that means our food and farming system. And that doesn't just, just doesn't mean your consumer choices in the marketplace. We got to change policies. We got to change investment. We got to change the outlook of people throughout the society. What kind of intersection or communication has there been between? Black Lives Matter, the advocates for the Green New Deal, and the organic community in terms of parlaying these different advocates and very powerful activism and activists, rolling them into one movement that could actually maybe be on the streets if necessary, but definitely lobbying for the kinds of changes you're talking about. Well, I think one exciting thing is that the climate emergency has gotten people to really think now. And and Black Lives Matter have reminded us that the climate crisis comes down hardest on communities of color and low-income people all over the world, the frontline people. But I also see an understanding that I've never seen before at this level. The climate community is starting to recognize that food and farming are a major part of us solving the climate crisis. We not only have to move to alternative energy and radical energy conservation in a just, equitable manner, but we have to sequester enormous amounts of carbon from the atmosphere to regenerative food and farming. And I think we're seeing that. I think that the COVID-19, Black Lives Matter, the climate crisis are converging together and that our various movements, which operated up until this year, too much in isolation from one another, food and farming, justice and public health and climate, is that we're going to start to work together more closely. And I think Biden and, and Harris are, even though they're talking vacuous talk, they sound exactly like other mainstream politicians, I do think they can be moved. We need to force these people in Washington to listen to the people 
rural America people and urban America people and get things right because we're running out of time. That was Ronnie Cummins, co-founder and international director of the Organic Consumers Association. Learn more about the intersection between sustainable organic farming and racial and economic justice by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. This year's Thanksgiving holiday marked the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Pilgrims in what is now Plymouth, Massachusetts, but was then Wampanoag Indigenous Territory. The date also marks the 50th anniversary of the Day of Mourning, which began in 1970, but it's also the 51st consecutive commemoration. The event is held at three important sites in Plymouth to remember what Indigenous people have lost and what they're still fighting for. In 1970, Wampanoag tribal member Frank Wamsutta James was asked by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to deliver a speech on Thanksgiving Day as a sign of brotherhood between whites and Native people on the 350th anniversary of the Pilgrims' Landing. But Wamsutta's speech was not acceptable to the white organizers of the event because he told the true story of the Thanksgiving encounter. So instead he gave his speech on Coles Hill where a statue of Wampanoag leader Massasoit stands overlooking the harbor and where a replica of the Mayflower and the much-diminished Plymouth Rock are located. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, the turnout was somewhat smaller this year, but the event was live-streamed for the first time, so many more people could attend remotely. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus recorded the speeches, including that of United American Indians of New England co-leader Matoi Monroe. The following segment is the first and last part of Monroe's Day of Mourning speech. Here we are, deep in the heartland of colonialism. Here we are, at a place where a great dying occurred, overlooking a harbor where Wampanoag, Nipmuc, Massachusetts, and other indigenous captives were shipped off as slaves. Let's take a moment to think about those who are no longer with us. Our elders leave us and they take so much knowledge with them when they do. It makes us feel lonely to be without them. But we also feel our ancestors here beside us, holding us up today. We pray for those who cannot be here with us today, for all of the people and communities hit hard by COVID, especially indigenous and black and Latinx communities with much higher rates of hospitalizations and deaths. We think of all the indigenous people throughout this hemisphere who are being swept away by this horrible disease, from British Columbia to Dineta to Brazil. As of yesterday, the hard-hit Navajo Nation has had more than 15,000 positive cases and 638 deaths. Many other communities are suffering tremendously. Our people all too often lack basic resources, clean water for washing, decent health care, and other things that would help to reduce the amount of sickness and death. 
But indigenous people are largely trapped under governments that do not care about our future and fail to take the necessary steps to make sure we are all protected. When Native nations ask for government help, they may be sent body bags instead of much needed supplies. Or the bureaucrats want to fight over sending relief money to tribes. To the settler governments, the saying, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, seems to remain true to this day. We think today of the many people and allies who are unable to be here with us. The epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits continues. Yesterday brought devastating news about a local missing Mashpee Wampanoag teen, Jalasia Finkley, whose body was believed to have been found in Florida. And today we offer our deepest condolences to her family and her community. We acknowledge the many struggles that all of you have carried here today. From the many efforts to stop pipelines and the Weymouth compressor station, to the ongoing work to free Puerto Rico, to the attempted desecration of sacred Mauna Kea by scientists who lack respect for indigenous sacred places to occupied Palestine. And we say loudly here and now and forever, Black Lives Matter. I end with talking about land back again, something on the lips of many indigenous people. Treaties need to be honored, lands need to be returned. There are ways to start the process of decolonizing the lands and to address climate collapse right now. First, ensure that no projects can go through any indigenous nation's land without free, prior, and informed consent. Second, take all of the land that's currently being mismanaged by all the settler governments, such as the national parks or the Amazon rainforest, and let indigenous nations manage that land. That would mean the restoration of millions of acres of our lands to us. It would also mean the end of the desecration of many sacred sites, such as the Black Hills or Sacred Oak Flat. Third, cancel all the leases, pipelines, mining and corporate contracts and let indigenous people decide what development should continue and what should not. I don't want anyone who hears this to feel like you should give up despite how hard 2020 has been. We can fight together for climate justice. We can take care of each other and do our best to mask up and reduce the spread of this plague. We can end settler colonialism. We can reclaim our lands. We are not vanishing. We are not conquered. We are as strong as ever. That was Matoe Monroe, co-leader of United American Indians of New England, speaking at the annual Day of Mourning event held in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Learn more about the Day of Mourning and read a message from U.S. political prisoner Leonard Peltier by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Global Community Radio in Geneva, New York, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, KMUD in Garberville, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Thank you.